What do you do on Mother's Day? You preach. <laughs> you preach the Bible, right? That's what we're looking for. Um, anybody, anybody ever been aware of needs around them and you tried to meet them and then maybe you kind of got sucked into it yourself and thought maybe, hey, wait a second, I deserve something here, right? I mean, like Will just did all that. Will and Steve got everything ready for the, the Mother's Day stuff and I'm guessing they're going to be cooking the meat out there, right? For the cookout. You guys going to be cooking? We're just talking about cookout right now. Okay. Going to work all that out. Sometimes, if you've ever manned the grill for long, this mindset tends to creep in. Wait a second. I deserve some of this food. And you start to wonder sometimes, is there going to be any food left for me? Because of the way that people eat. And so maybe you sneak a hot dog while you're um, grilling. Y'all ever done that? No, no. You're, you're not going to do it today because this is about moms. So anyway. That's true. Well, you know, that's what Jody was saying. Yeah, yeah. That's what Jody was saying in the back. You know, somebody's got to be the cupbearer, right? right? Yeah, just like Nehemiah. Somebody's got to be the cupbearer. That's right. Yeah, we're not all called to be Nehemiahs. So. But it's easy to lose sight of the needs around you when you're concerned with yourself because you think, well, I've got needs. And What we're going to see today in Nehemiah is a bunch of people who um, kind of did things for themselves, got things out of whack. And if we know anything about Nehemiah, He's going to do something about it, right? So, we're going to read Nehemiah chapter 5. It's 19 verses. And uh, get some insight as to what's going on here, why it's going on, and how it fits into us doing the work of God today. Because the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, and it's valid for us today. So we don't want to just read about history. We want to read about history so that we can learn from it and live it out in the present in the future. So if you can and would, stand with us as we read Nehemiah chapter 5, remembering that these are the very words of God. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive." There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the the taunts of the nations? And our enemies, moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year of the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes the king, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. 
The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration forty shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Let me pray. God, we trust your Holy Spirit to teach us, to convict us, and to draw us to you. Help us then to go out and do the things that we hear today so that you might be glorified. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. What an honor and a privilege to hear the words of God. So, let's kind of set the stage for those folks who haven't been with us. We've been through Ezra. And after Ezra 1 through 6, we went to Esther because of time period. That's how this works out. And then we went back to Ezra 7 through 10, and now we're in Nehemiah. And what has happened is the exiles, the Jewish population that was exiled out of the land of Israel, has been sent back through various kings to the land of Israel, to Jerusalem. Ezra and his bunch were coming back to help establish temple worship in Jerusalem after the exile. And they got the temple built, and it wasn't quite as cool as the temple that was there when they left, but it was a temple, and they reestablished temple worship. Ezra came back and established the law of God as the normative uh, lifestyle for the people of God in the land of God. And now we've got Nehemiah, who was living in Susa. He was the cupbearer to the king. He had to taste the wine to make sure it tasted all right, make sure it wasn't poisoned, uh, and give it to the king. And he heard that the walls were broken down in Jerusalem. And he was grieved. It says he sat down and he grieved. And he was so upset because he had heard about the walls. So he asked the king if he could come back to Jerusalem and help rebuild these walls. Because if the walls were down in the city, the city was not secure. And if the people of God weren't secure, then the glory of God was not secure. And ultimately what this is about is Nehemiah wants the people of God to be in the land of God, keeping the law of God for the glory of God. That's what this is all about. And he says they can't do that properly if the walls and the gates are broken down. So he has started this massive rebuilding project. We've, we've seen them meet opposition, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and all those folks. And last week we saw that they were literally surrounded by enemies. And the enemies were causing all kinds of trouble. They were threatening to come. First they just jeered, oh, look at you guys. If you, a fox jumps up on that wall, it's going to fall over. But then they started making threats of war. They started making threats of murder, terrorism. And some of the people of Israel even started complaining because they were working hard, sun up to sundown, weapon in one hand, stuff in the other to build with. And they were working. They were standing guard at night. But they continued to work. And that last week we saw that they got the wall built to half its height. And they closed it up all the way around the city, a mile and a half wall. And they got it closed up to half its height. Now, today, after seeing the dangers of opposition coming from within the people, which we talked about, some of the Jews were upset. Today, we're going to see what that looks like ad nauseum. What happens when the enemy that is within really starts to exert influence. Let me start with verse 1 and 2. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For, for there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Now what we see here, we're about a month into this building project. Okay, So let's just say about a month, 30, 30-ish days. And there's a lot going on. So much is getting done, but there's so much struggling. There's so much fighting. And some people start to raise their voices. What we're seeing here is that these people are Jews, the very people who had come back from exile to live in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. These are the people who had come back to the promised land, whose hearts had been stirred by God Himself to come back from the exile. But they are struggling. 
Have you ever tried to accomplish something and it got real hard and you start to wonder, am I doing the right thing? That's exactly what's going on here. God had stirred them up to come back to the promised land and they're working. But now these people who to this point had sacrificed and worked and given themselves over this past month to get this wall built and to see the glory of God on display here in their homeland, now they start to cry out. What's going on? Because their cry is both great and valid. What were they crying about? They're crying that these are the people and their wives are crying out against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, this, now this is, here's their cry, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. So the cry is coming from the people and their wives. And what's their cry? We are hungry. We are dying because we don't have any food. That's a pretty valid concern, right? Huh? I mean, we're going to eat and we're going to have leftovers today. I promise you. I guarantee it. We always do. These people didn't have the basic ingredient of everything they made so that they could eat. Now, frame that up. They'd been working, they'd been working, they'd been working... And there were still families who were living outside of Jerusalem in villages all around it. And they had sent people to work on the wall. Well, word gets to Jerusalem that these people in the outlying places specifically are saying, we are starving to death. Our sons, our daughters, we don't have grain. You're over there working on a wall and we're starving to death. Things are going well with the wall. They've overcome some opposition. But what's the old saying? War is hell on the home front too, right? You bet it is. And here, in this case, it's even more so because for those back at home, their Jewish brothers, their very own people, were withholding grain from them. Food. Basic necessities. And with their sons and their daughters, they were many. And their request is simply that they could have some grain that we may eat and keep alive. They're not asking for a holiday at the beach. They're not asking for somebody to come and mow their lawn. They're asking for food that they might stay alive. Sounds fair, right? These people are literally starving to death with no help, no assistance, no safety net, and no brotherly love being shown by their kin and kith around them. Makes sense as to why their outcry was great, doesn't it? Imagine being a mom, mothers, waking up every day with kids in the house, wondering if you would have food to give them that day, and doubting that you will. And you see their bellies starting to swell. You hear them say, Mom, I'm hungry. These are real people. This really happened. This is history. And people are starving to death. And imagine being that same mom, seeing your neighbors eating and living life as normal and ignoring you and your need. These people were poor and helpless and their men were busy building a wall that would not benefit them or their hungry children at all. At what point do you despair in your starvation and say, wall or no wall, we need you to come home, we need you to provide for us because nobody else is going to. All they're asking for is food to stay alive. One would think that shouldn't be too hard. One would think that these returned exiles would have a spirit of kindred, kith and kin and say, oh, oh, we'll help provide for you. But that's exactly what's not happening. But they're not the only ones making noise. Verse 3. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. So the last group we looked at was subsistence living folk. These are poor folk. They just wanted to eat to stay alive. The poorest of the poor. Now here we see another group. What they are saying and who they are, they're saying we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. These folks were landowners. They weren't as poor as the previous folk, but they're literally mortgaging their fields, their vineyards and their houses, so that they can get grain. 
And then they throw in the fact that there's a famine going on, on top of what we just looked at before. So problem is compounded by problem. It's literally raining and pouring on these people who are uniting to work on this wall. Now these particular people are a little wealthier than the previous outcriers, but to think that they were mortgaging their homes and their livelihoods just to get grain shows how bad things have gotten. They're just trying to survive too, and they're having to borrow money against what they have to do it. It seems the famine had driven the cost of goods up in a supply and demand type of situation, and even the more well-off were having a hard time acquiring enough food to live on. You ever hear stories of post-World War I Germany? Everything that happened over there, they got these sanctions handed down to them. It says that they literally had to carry money in a wheelbarrow to buy a loaf of bread. That's what's going on here. The German currency had devalued so much, it took so much more money to buy the simple things. That's what's going on here. Imagine having to take out a loan on your home or your fields to have money for flour. That's literally what's going on here. And these people want Nehemiah to know what's going on too. So we've seen the poorest of the poor, and now we've seen the landowners, but that's not all, four and five. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Now this group would be the wealthy, and their complaint is taxes. Let me just ask you this. How relevant is the Bible? I mean, really. This might just as well be an article in Time magazine. Today, with the poor starving, the middle class swimming in debt, and the rich complaining about taxes. That's exactly what's going on here. These people in these verses are borrowing money to pay taxes on their fields and their vineyards. It's called the king's tax which means it's imposed from the king, King Artaxerxes in this case, himself. Derek Thomas in his teaching on this section of Nehemiah records this. The Persians loved to tax. Artaxerxes I, the king that Nehemiah worked for as a cupbearer, was known for his taxation policies. Must have been a Democrat. <laughs> Sorry, I should not do that. But... He go, Derek Thomas goes on to say, when Alexander the Great conquered Susa, where, he first met Nehemiah, where we first met Nehemiah, he discovered 270 tons of gold bullion and 1,200 tons of silver bullion, and that was just in Susa. They were taxed for ownership of land, ownership of vineyards, and little of this taxation went back to the satrapies, the local Persian government officials, to provide for certain needs of the community. End of quote. So the king's just accumulating wealth from the taxes, piling up gold and silver in Susa. And the rich are saying, we've got to do bad things to get this money. A whole lot of taxing going on. When governments get wealthy taxing their people, there's always problems. And here, it's not just that they were borrowing money to pay the taxes, which is bad enough, but look at the end of verse 5. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. In order to pay these taxes on the fields and the vineyards, they're forcing their sons and their daughters to be slaves, which was a common way to pay off debt at that time. And not only that, but it goes on to say, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help. Now this implies that there's a different kind of slavery going on here. Connect the dots, y'all. Our daughters are being enslaved. What do you think they're talking about? It sounds like their daughters are being sold into prostitution to help raise money to pay the king's tax. And they said it's not in our power to help because other people have our stuff. Moms, look around at your kids this morning. What if you had to sell them into slavery so that you could pay your taxes? Things is bad, y'all. 
This is rough. This is awful. We're celebrating the wall being closed up to half its height. Yay, wall! And these people can't eat and they're selling their kids into slavery and they're mortgaging their fields and their houses, which means they're going to lose them because they're not going to be able to buy them back. So it's probably about as bad as you could imagine. And their point is stated earlier in the verse when they say, Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Which means our kids are kids just like everybody else's kids. They don't deserve this. And we're like the people who are doing this to us. So shouldn't we all just take care of each other? Which points to the scandal in all of this. All of this oppression is carried out by Jews toward Jews. It is Jewish people requiring these payments and taking these children into prostitution and slavery for their own benefit. It's not Sanballat and Tobiah. It's just the people of God taking advantage of the people of God. And it's tearing the Jewish people apart from the inside. When an outside enemy approaches, people unify. Nothing unites us like a common enemy, right? But when the threat is internal, people devour each other from within. And don't think the devil don't know this. Because that's exactly what's going on here and exactly what these people are bringing to Nehemiah, who is the governor, to his attention. Now, how does he react? How do you think he reacts? Verse 6 in the first part of verse 7. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself. <laughs> I like that. Huh? If I know anything about Nehemiah, we said this early on in the introduction to Nehemiah, it's that he cares. And he cares a lot. So when he hears all of this going on, he's not just angry, he's very angry. And what's he do? Does he go on a tear and rip all these oppressors a new one? No, no. He purposefully, pointedly took counsel with himself. Nehemiah knows that there's a lot going on right now. He's tired, he's stressed. He's pouring himself out day in and day out. And he knows that if he goes with his gut immediately, things won't be good. Scripture says to be angry and sin not. So Nehemiah takes a breath, counts to a hundred. Now what am I going to do? He calls a timeout. And then he responds. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, (laughs) The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Old Nehemiah just puts it all out on the table. After after taking counsel with himself, after collecting himself and not lashing out in anger, he just says what's going on. You are exacting interest each from his brother. You're like, well, what's the big deal? It's clear in the law of God that Jews aren't supposed to exact interest from Jews. Let me read that to you. Exodus 22, 25-27. If you lend money... This is back when God's establishing the law for the people of God. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. (laughs) See, God had said Israelites were not to exact interest from each other. That's about as clear as it can be, right? Don't do this. And they're doing it. Ezra had been back in the land teaching them the law of God, so I don't think they can plead ignorance. God also said that if the oppressed cry out to Him, that He would hear them. Why? Because God is compassionate. 
And these Israelites were put in that land to image forth God to the world so they should be compassionate as well. And they obviously were not being compassionate when they were doing all that they were doing to get the interest in the slaves from their brothers that they were getting. So Nehemiah holds what he calls a great assembly against them where he lays it on the line and he calls wrong, wrong. And in so doing, he says that they have bought back some of the Israelites that were sold as slaves to the other nations. Now think about that. Nehemiah and his folks were buying Jews back out of slavery and he lays that right at the feet of those who had done the initial selling of these people into slavery since they couldn't pay their debts to them. And what do the accused say in response? Crickets. Nothing. They don't say nothing. Matter of fact, they say nothing. And so Nehemiah hits back at them and says that they should be doing things that show that they fear God and love His people so that those who are opposed to them won't have anything to taunt them with. Which implies that the outside nations were taunting them, probably pointing out the fact that some of them were taking such blatant advantage of their kin. Now can you hear that? Well, at least I'm not a Jew. Those Jews are hardcore. They rob and steal from their own people. They sell their own brothers into slavery. All being said, even the nations could see that what the Jews were doing was wrong. And they were mocking the Jews and their God as a result. And then, in verses 10 and 11, Nehemiah tells them exactly what was being done and exactly what they should do. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Nehemiah says that him and his brothers were lending money and grain to their fellow countrymen, which is perfectly legal and right. You can lend, just don't exact interest. So Nehemiah and his brothers were helping by lending, but they aren't taking advantage of their brothers by profiting from it. Actually, they were sacrificing. So Nehemiah says that no one should be exacting interest in all of this craziness, and that everyone's fields, vineyards, olive orchards, and houses should be returned to them. Like when Ezra called for the people to put away their foreign wives and children, this is radical action. In a time of famine and inflation, these folks who had acquired wealth unjustly were called to restore property to the people they had taken it from. And they were to return to the victims the percentage of interest that they had charged on monies, grain, wine, and oil. What you did was wrong. How you got your property and stuff was wrong, so give it back. That's pretty tough right there, isn't it? It's one thing to stop unfair practices. You can look and say, okay, I was wrong to do that. I won't do it anymore. It's another thing to look at your stuff in your home now and say, oh, well, I'll give this stuff back to them that I took from them. That's a whole different mindset. And that's tougher, right? So how do you figure these extortionists respond to these demands? Verse 12. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. They say, okay, we'll do it. No hidden agenda. No secret backdoor stuff, right? They're like, we'll do it. Nehemiah says, okay, that's great, but we're going to call the priests in. We're going to make you put your hand on a Bible and raise your hand and say, okay, I, won't, I promise I won't do this. Because exactly what's going on. He calls the priests and made the wrongdoers swear to do as they had promised. Nehemiah isn't leaving this up to folks who've already shown a propensity to dishonesty. He made them pinky promise to the priests. But that's not all he did. Verse 13. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Now to make this point visible and more concrete to them, Nehemiah uses his clothes to show what the consequences should be if his audience doesn't do what they're told. He would have been wearing a robish type outer garment that they used. They would fold it up and they'd carry stuff in it. I would do that to show you, but you you don't want that. I promise. 
So he shakes out one of those folds to make sure there's nothing in it. And he says, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. Which is just another way of saying, if you don't restore what you said you would, may you lose everything and may you know that it was God who caused the loss. To which all the assembly said, Amen. And then this, and praised the Lord. Wow. You guys are no good, dirty, rotten cheaters. Give back what you've taken or may God take what is yours. Amen. Praise God. Let me tell you what, when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of people and convicts them, what results is praise. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and we bring it up and we confess it like we were talking about with the table, the result is praise to God. I say, yea, verily, and praise God. That's exactly what they did. Seems odd, but all's well that ends well, right? And the people did as they had promised. Now you talk about morale, right? And Nehemiah makes clear that he was part of the blessing too. Moreover, verses 14 and 15, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. So Nehemiah was governor. We see that officially here, by the way. And as such, he could have received a food allowance to feed him and his brothers, him and his fellow governing folk. But for the 12 years that he was governor, neither he nor his brothers took that allowance. He didn't want to add to the burden of the people by laying heavy burdens on them just to feed him and his. So he didn't exact this payment from these already strapped Jews. And his reasoning is clear, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Nehemiah didn't want to put forth an image of one who was not following or revering God. He's not sampling the hot dogs as he's cooking them. Because he fears God and he reveres God because he doesn't want to take advantage of the people of God because that would be a shame to God. So he saw the suffering of the people and he took steps to alleviate that suffering. He did without so that they wouldn't have to. At least not as much as they would have if he had required his tax. And he didn't forget why he was there either. Verse 16, I also persevered in the work on this wall. That's the point here, right? And we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. The whole reason Nehemiah and his cohorts were in Jerusalem was to build this wall. It would have been easy to get there and lose sight of why they were there. It would have been easy to get to governing and lose oneself in the day-to-day life and be governor and cease to be a wall builder. But Nehemiah did no such thing. He persevered in the work on the wall. And we acquired no land. He wasn't there to build wealth. He was there to build a wall. Focus, focus, focus. He and his servants worked on what needed worked on. The clear priority was pervasive and kept in clear perspective. Even in the hubbub of all of this day-to-day life and all of this outcry and all these people doing wrong things, he kept building the wall. Verses 17 and 18. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men. Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on his people. You ever had guests over for a meal? As the Moore family, we pack quite a wallop. We bring six people when we come for dinner. Can y'all come and eat? Yep. We're going to bring six folks though. People are like, whew, I don't know if I've got enough food to feed six people. Imagine having 150 people every day to feed. Every day, Nehemiah was feeding 150 people plus any foreign emissaries that might have been in the area. 150 every day. And then look at verse 18. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was ox, sheep, birds, and all kinds of wine in abundance. They were eating pretty good, but note that this was at Nehemiah's expense. He came with the blessing and care of the king, and he did not hoard that blessing. 
He used it to feed his people to do his duty in the land where he was. He did not ask for tax money from the Jews for a food allowance, but he also did not withhold what was his in order to supply the needs of him and his crew. He couldn't feed all the workers working on the wall, but those that he was responsible for got what they needed and he paid for it. This guy's a pretty good role model for us as far as doing the work of God, as far as administering, and as far as leading. Good egg, right? Last verse. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. Now let me ask you something. How do you feel about that? Here's one of those arrow prayers that we talked about. And it's asking God to remember all that Nehemiah has done for this people for his own good. Remember for my good, O my God all that I have done for this people. Is that selfish? Is that wrong? Shouldn't he do what he does not for reward? Shouldn't he not be thinking of himself? Apparently he didn't think so. He asks God to keep records of all that he was doing and to bless him accordingly. Hmm. There just might be something there, y'all. Which leads us to application. How are we to apply what we have seen today if we are going to engage in the work of God in our time to see injustices around us and do something about them, especially within the church? I don't have alliterated points, sorry. Ran out of time. So the first point is accountability. How do we apply what we've just read and heard? First... We need accountability. These Jews that were exacting interest in taking people in the slaves, they weren't accountable to anybody. And let me tell you what, without accountability, you will run off into sin. So we need accountability. And we need people to tell us the truth. Nehemiah was clear in his charges that he leveled against the nobles and oppressors who were taking advantage of their poor kinsmen. He said, you are doing this, you need to stop, and you need to restore what has been taken. Listen, we need people who love us enough in our lives to tell us the truth. We need people in our lives who are people who know the Word of God, who are close enough to us to speak the Word of God to us, And tell us where we are sinning, where we are wondering, the deficiencies they see in our lives. Who don't joke and pat you on the back when you say, my devotional life isn't what it should be. That's okay, buddy, neither is mine. That's not accountability. And most men's accountability groups that I've ever been a part of devolve into that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. I need somebody to get up in my face and say, that's not good enough. That is is sin. Proverbs 27.6 says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. An enemy will just kiss on you and tell you you're good and it's alright and we're all busy. A friend will punch you in the gut when you need to be punched in the gut. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. We need Christian accountability in the context of the local church and in the context of our homes so that people will level with us. Greg Morse, writing for Desiring God, says this, True friends are not mobsters who club us with their words to prove points or settle scores, but godly friends are not less than EMTs emergency medical technicians, who will rip open our carefully crafted excuses and stun us back to life. They wound us for our good. Anybody got anybody in their life like that? If you do, you are blessed. If you don't, find somebody. Look around this room. Look somebody in the eye and say, please tell me the truth. Please hold me accountable. We've talked about accountability so much here. I feel like you're going, oh, it's that again. Yes, it's that again. Look at somebody and tell them to remind you that you said you don't want to sin. 
Look at somebody and tell them to remind you that you said you don't want to click on those things anymore. Look somebody in the eye and say, remind me that I said I wanted a regular devotional time in the morning. And that doesn't make you more spiritual if you've got a regular devotional time in the morning, but it shows that you're pursuing God. And there's somebody who loves you enough to remind you if you're not pursuing God, you should be. Nehemiah was angry with the nobles, but he took a little bit of time to gather himself and then he brought clear charges and gave clear instruction to the offenders. That's our recipe to be that kind of friend too. Don't mindlessly accuse, don't gossip, don't slander, but go to the friend that you love. Tell them how they are sinning and give them clear biblical directions on on how to repent and correct their course. Have those people in your life and be those people for somebody else in your life. That's really good stuff there. And we all need it. So accountability is our first application point. The second is caring for the poor. The whole premise of what we saw today in Nehemiah was about caring for the poor. And listen to me, we talk about doing the work of God. We talk about what would God have us to do. If we are to be engaged in any work of God, it will by necessity involve care for the poor in some way. From the Torah to the epistles, we see clear directions for caring for the poor. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. James, in his letter, even boils our religious lives down to this, James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The widows and the orphans were the poorest of the poor. And James says, visiting them in their affliction, helping them in their need is pure and undefiled religion. And then he spends the first part of chapter 2 talking about not giving preference to rich people over poor people. That's directly following that verse. Even Proverbs 31. How could, if you didn't mention Proverbs 31 on Mother's Day, did you even preach? I mean, really? right? Proverbs 31.20. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. The Bible is replete with instruction and directions, and not only that we are to care for the poor, but also how to. Christian people help poor people. It's in our DNA. We have to be about that business if we are going to be doing God's work. Accountability, caring for the poor. Number three application point out of four. So you know. Third application point is sacrifice. Nehemiah paid for the food for those working with them. The oppressors in the passage gave up the monies and lands they had wrongly taken in their sin. If we are to do the work of God, we will necessarily have to sacrifice something. It's going to cost us time. It's going to cost us money. It's going to cost us fun. It's going to cost us safety. And it's going to cost us a thousand other things over the course of our lives. It is absolutely going to come with a cost to walk with Jesus. Jesus Himself said to count the cost of following Him, and it entails everything. Let me read this for you. Luke 14, 25-33. Now great crowds accompanied Him. And He turned and said to them, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, count the cost. And the cost is everything. And if you think you can get by in a Christian life without it costing you something, without some sort of sacrifice, you are not a Christian. Jesus said, it's going to cost you everything to follow me. 
He says it another way in Matthew 16, 24 and 25. And he called out, oh, that's the wrong verse. It should be Matthew. I'll read it here. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Yes, it's going to cost you everything, including your own life. So when we lay down our lives sacrificially in the work of God, that's right. But we find true life in the process, which leads us to our last point. And all of this talk about work and all of this talk about sacrifice and all this talk about accountability and laying down our lives, point four, it's going to sound familiar, look for the blessing. Nehemiah prayed that God would remember his sacrifices and bless him for doing these things. And much like we talked about a few weeks ago with the what's in it for me thing, we are right to ask what's in this for us. Jesus said to take up our cross if we're going to follow Him, but He also said if we lose our lives for His sake, we will find it. Now did you catch that? If we lay down our earthly lives, and if we lay down our desires, we get true eternal life. Jesus again says in Luke 18, 29-30, And He said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who is left, house or wife or brothers or parents or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. We sacrifice everything now, but we get real life. And we get real life now and later. The sacrifices we make now do lead to blessings later. And I think it's biblically right to remember this as we make sacrifices for the kingdom. Look for reward because it's coming if we're faithful and we walk with Jesus in a sacrificial way. I couldn't help, and I didn't do this on purpose, but I couldn't help but think about mothers when I'm thinking about sacrificing, 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 but also seeing the reward. Let's see if this video works. It take, it's a minute and a half long. It made me think of this. That's pretty good, ain't it? (laughs) Mom, you're the perfect picture of this. Sacrificing for reward. And ultimately, who's the better picture of this? Jesus. Right? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. Jesus was rich and He became poor so that you could be rich. And, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was rich, He became poor, poured Himself out so that you could become rich. And why did He do it? So we'd say, oh, poor Jesus. Poor martyr Jesus. No, He did it for the joy that was set before Him. 
So when we talk about sacrifices, when we talk about accountability, when we talk about laying down our lives, we do it with a view looking to Jesus, who is our example, so that we might know that there is joy set before us. There is blessing set before us that carries us through the cross, that carries us through the shame. And there is a day of rest coming for the people of God that we have not entered into yet. And that is the hope that we have given to us by the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. So yeah, we can look to Nehemiah as an example. We can look to mom as an example of this. But ultimately, we look to Jesus. And we recognize that He did what He did, not just for our sake. The gospel is less about you and much more about the glory of God just like the walls of Jerusalem. We're surely not about the glory of Nehemiah. Now he gets some glory for it because he did a good job. But the glory of the gospel is that God in His grace chose us before the foundation of the world and made a way for us to be with Him forever so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren and that it all would be to the praise of the glory of God. I will glory in my Redeemer. Not in just my salvation. I'll glory in my Redeemer who saved me. So look for the blessing because the blessing that you're ultimately looking for is the glory of God. And as sure as we sit here today, that glory will be revealed to all men for all eternity. Either in heaven as we worship and adore Him or in hell as we suffer forever because we despised Him. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You have not left us as orphans. We thank You that Your plan involves bringing us to Yourself. And so as we talk about things like accountability, as we talk about giving sacrificially to the poor, as we talk about sacrifice and laying down our lives and taking up our cross, ultimately we look to You as our great reward. And we know that if You prescribed these things for us, God, that You are going to provide for us in the midst of them. And if You provide for us, God, You get glory. And ultimately that's what we are alive for, is to give You glory. I do pray, God, for a blessing upon the mothers in this place. I am one who has been blessed by a fantastic mother. And I pray that the children of this congregation would rise up and call their mothers blessed. And that you would receive glory from the lives that they lay down day in and day out, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith as well. Knowing that their labor and their sacrifice has not been in vain but that you are preparing for them a place where they will dwell forever with you, singing your praise and imaging you forth throughout eternity. God, let us be those who run this race with endurance. And may we be those who glory in you. We love you because you loved us first, and we say thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? And please keep in mind we will be cooking out afterward. If you can stay and eat with us. Now, to Him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Stay and eat with us if you can.